start the recording so apparently my screen sharing is still a little weird because i'm lagging on my end i don't know if it's showing up for for you guys or not but we'll see as we we get through it but um one of the the fun things with the reading this week and for for last week that i, I came across was um Anybody that's listening to, to Avraham Gileadi's uh, weekly podcast, kind of going along with Come Follow Me, uh, it's pretty loosely, but uh, he finds something with uh, that relates to Isaiah. And um, anyway, this week's is called, it's number 27, it's called Defining the Sons of the Prophets. So if you did want to watch those, I'm not going to screen share it because it's <laughs> slowing my computer down, but um, you go to the isaiahinstitute.com and click on podcasts and click on the Old Testament one, and you'll be able to, to listen to all of those. But anyway, number 27, I found very interesting uh, called Defining the Sons of the Prophets, which from our reading last week, we know that the school of the prophets is based on the Old Testament pattern of the sons of the prophets. So there's just the, the very beginning paragraph, um, which on um, the Isaiah Institute website, you can click on the, the audio versions of them, but also down below, um, there's links to the actual text uh, where you can print it off or, or read it kind of a thing. Anyway, so I'm just reading this first paragraph here, and I found it so intriguing to help kind of widen our scope of uh, the sons of the prophets in relation to what we're studying. So it says, about the time of Elijah and Elisha, we see the emergence of a caste of ascetics called the sons of the prophets. Like the latter-day sectaries in New Testament times, they lived mostly apart from a corrupt society in a call-out type of condition and devoted their lives to God. Some additionally were Nazarites, persons who took vows of consecration to God and abstained from certain foods and practices. They generally married, but cultivated the gift of prophecy by seeking the tutelage of a man of God, such as Elijah or Elisha, to whom they looked as a spiritual father. The school of the prophets, organized by the prophet Joseph Smith, became a latter-day extension of this phenomenon, and it has an important application in Isaiah's end-time scenario. So he goes on to uh, kind of expound on all of those principles, but um, what he winds up with is in Isaiah, um, Isaiah also uh, secludes himself along with groups as uh, he's training them, and that all of these play a type for the end-time servant, the end-time Davidic servant, who also conducts a school of the prophets in a call-out type of a situation. So I found that just very interesting how, um, I don't know, the timing <laughs> is just uh, intriguing how uh, we kind of postponed a little bit of lectures on faith till now, and it uh, corresponds with uh, what we're reading in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. Um, but anyway, this week has been so fun to read 2 Kings um, 2 through 7. I think it's 4 through 7 in our um, actual Come Follow Me manuals, but um, reading chapters 2 through 7 of 2 Kings provides an excellent scope of... Um, kind of the sons of the prophets and, and school of the prophets and helping us learn and deepen our understanding of uh, why the lectures on faith are so important to our day and um, what it means for the end time scenario, according to Isaiah. So hey, anyway, where, 
Where in Isaiah Institute, what tab can we find that at? Uh -huh, yeah, let me pull it up so I'm not... Okay, so uh, IsaiahInstitute.com, yep. across the top, there's a podcast tab. Yep. And then there's three different links underneath yep. of it. Um, and you're going to do the studies in the Old Testament one. Yep, I'm there now. Good. Then what? And then, um, so all of those podcasts, um, they're zero through 27. Oh, yep, I see it now. Thanks. Okay. Play those. And then down below, under the annotation section, um, you can also scroll down and there's a, it'll open up a PDF of each of those as they're actually typed out. And you can uh, sure. print those out if you'd like. Anyway, Thanks. I just, I mean, like I followed them for like the first three or four weeks or whatever. And then I kind of got behind just because there's so much to be studying all the time. Um, but this one intrigued me because it was like Sons of the Prophets. Oh my goodness, this is what we're studying. And so uh, I went back and printed out all of the, the podcasts and everything. And, you know, like I do because I'm a nerd. But anyway, I find all of these very... Um, exciting because they're pretty much just one page uh, front and back um, just kind of little nuggets of information uh, to go along with our, our studies but I found Cameron? this uh-huh yeah um just um this might be a silly question but just wondering the term sons of the sons of the prophets um is that is that based on like the Davidic covenant language of like the prophets being, you know, I'm totally messed. What am I trying to say? Anyways, I was just wondering about that term. What you? Yeah. So he addresses that. Um, I believe. I don't know. I've read so many things this week, <laughs> but um, I believe that he takes a section of that and, and uh, branches that out. Um, but he's like. Obviously, these aren't sons, like biological sons of the prophet, but they are um, sons and they look to their father, their spiritual father that is giving them uh, further light and knowledge. As we know from um, uh, scripture and, and traditions and all that, that Elijah is uh, on the seraphim level during his the latter part of his ministry as he's teaching these son servants. So as we look... Um, on, on the ladder, you know, in our Isaiah decoded uh, book club, we're uh, right at that, <laughs> that interim, right? Uh, we just finished up with sun servant level and we're going on to the seraphim level. And it seems like um, that these, these seraphim are then taking these sun servants under their wings, teaching them how to act in their role as, as sons and and servants and so um he develops this out with elijah and elisha specifically where um they are pulled out in a call out situation because jerusalem is getting so wicked that there's nothing there to to do um for these people and so they pull out and he teaches them how to make covenants on behalf of the city of jerusalem like it's a very interesting pattern of everything that um, sun servants and seraphim do on behalf of um, Jacob Israel and Zion Jerusalem in order to help bless them. Um, but they they kind of seclude themselves. And it kind of, you know, we, we talk about call out and stuff a lot in um, 
in these groups, but it gave me a whole new insight into what our prophesied modern day call out purpose is for and and how that works anyway but yeah a very interesting read um he goes through that and and goes through um isaiah's type because isaiah also does the same thing he pulls out a group of people and and teaches them and tutors them how to properly act within the terms of the davidic covenant on the son servant level but they they always refer to their their teacher as a father and so we have that that father son or emperor vassal um relationship being um instituted a lot and then moving that forward to school of the prophets uh very much so uh many of the um students for lack of a better word um called joseph smith or sydney rigdon or orson whitney their father as we were were learning and, and growing together that's so cool. I know, right? Like so cool, <laughs> but I mean, I just never was heard so it. unaware of all of that. So Sunday when I was sitting in Sunday school and they we were talking discussing the story of Elijah and uh, him and the the widow lady that and he asked her for the the meal there and uh, her and her son were just getting ready to have their last meal and everything and I as I everybody was talking about it and everything and I was thinking about uh, how Elisha has almost the same similar story he goes to this widow but she has two sons but the stories are pretty much the same. And so I got thinking, why, why are we being told both stories? I said, there must be something to this. I'm telling myself that. And anyway, Cameron was in the family history uh, lab. And I, so I slipped out and I, I just got thinking about that. As I slipped out and I went in and, and told him what I, I was kind of, mulling this over in my head and and he had just very learned that morning about uh elijah and elijah having uh, leading these um son uh prophet um sons of the prophet things and he was telling me he says did you know that the the sons of that the one that elisha went to those were in the sons of the prophet school those those uh two boys there and i said heavens no i didn't know that and i thought what's what's with this and everything and anyway can you tell them about the doubling of the miracles between elijah and and elisha because i i find that really interesting too uh -huh, yeah, so um, everyone knows that I love the <laughs> the Bible Project videos. Uh, they're not LDS, but um, they, they produce very excellent overview videos. Um, I, I just put the link in the chat to the one for uh, the Book of Kings. And um, in that, an interesting point was that they brought out was that Elijah and Elisha are very similar uh, kind of piggyback uh, prophets, 
But it's interesting to note that Elisha petitions the Lord for a double portion of the authority that his predecessor, Elijah, had. And so if you look and uh, compare the two, in the account of, of Second Kings, that Elijah performs seven distinct miracles, and Elisha performs 14 distinct miracles. So he is granted that double portion of authority that uh, he petitions for. And um, within that, it's also usually doubled in uh, intensity. So with Elijah, there's a widow and her son, but with Elisha, there's a widow and her two sons. And uh, anyway, it's just interesting looking and comparing and contrasting all of that out. Um, but I didn't understand that until looking at that uh, Bible project video. Uh, I found it very enlightening, kind of going through the whole pattern there. Every time that we start into a new book of scripture, I always go to the Bible project and, and look at those because they just have such a great overview of what we're looking at. And then I can dive in, study and kind of pick things apart. Um, but also something to note, because Elisha and um, those those two sons that were uh, part of the widow's household there uh, were sons in this sons of the prophets type of thing but also um some i'm gonna try to screen share again hopefully it doesn't break me but um so i this is from an education week class uh, a couple of years ago this is from uh, brother tolly and he breaks down the latter prophets in this way based purely upon word count and so um he says that it's basically like a first presidency and the quorum of the 12 apostles um, as far as the writings of the latter prophets isaiah jeremiah and ezekiel have the most word count i mean they're giving more conference talks than all the rest right um but they all like all 15 of these are giving apocalyptic visions and so they're looking at the end times. They've seen the end from the beginning, and they are prophesying for the end time because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so here we have the first presidency um, who, coincidentally, all take upon themselves um, uh, a call-out situation and teach a, a group of sons um, the patterns of prophesying and how to um, work on the sun servant level. But anyway, if you'll notice the 12, uh, listed there, the, the minor, uh, prophets, um, all of those, well, in Avraham's document, you'll see who all we know for sure were in the sons of the prophets. Um, he lists out Micah, Micah. Ananias, Joel, Habakkuk, and his son, Jashub, and somewhere else he puts another one in there. But anyway, I found it interesting to note that a lot of these minor uh, prophets, as they kind of are termed, came from the sons of the prophets, from the tutelage of, of greater ones, and they themselves prophesy uh, forward into the future kind of a thing. So uh, I don't know, interesting connections and a lot more that I want to study and, and delve into, but. Uh, that is really cool. Yeah. Um, I just had a question for you. Um, just going back to Elisha, 
asking for the double portion. Do you think that, I mean, and then there's the, yeah, I mean, you know, they're kind of the same story essentially. Like, do you think that double portion has anything to do with Ephraim's double portion? That's a great like, I don't even know. So, I mean, I just don't know enough to like go beyond that. It just, I heard double portion and thought of that. Yeah, because that's that's one of the common things of Ephraim, right? That that double portion. And so like taking um <laughs> my brain just like fried all of a sudden, just a second. Um so like when we have reached a certain level of blessedness according to Isaiah decoded, because this is somewhere in our readings from either past weeks or, or upcoming weeks here that it's fresh on my mind, but I, I can't remember exactly which chapter. It's six or seven. But anyway, it says, once you've reached a certain level of blessedness, you are prepared to part the veil and request blessings. And so um, the the blessings are, are a multitude. There's lots of different things that we can ask the Father, well, ask Christ for and, and receive. Uh, it could be translation. It could be this. It could be that, you know. Uh, Amongst all of the different descriptions of apostles or other blessed ones who have parted the veil and, and petitioned, um, one of them is um, extended blessings, or possibly, in reference to this, a double portion, which I'd never considered before. But um, now that you bring that up, like Ephraim received a double portion, uh, Elisha receives a double portion, I wonder if that's one of the, the possible um things to to request upon receiving that i don't know i'm gonna have to study that one out um <laughs> sorry i took up a whole bunch of time and we haven't even got into what we're here to talk about tonight <laughs> so we have the um the ordinance and salutation of uh, the school of the prophets um just because my computer is being weird, I'm going to just bring it up on my phone. But again, uh, I want to recite this each week as we um, look at the School of the Prophets, uh, DNC 88, verse 133. And this is the salutation that they all um, received and reciprocated uh, upon entering the school each time. It says, art thou a brother or brethren? I would, you know, sister as well as we um, modify that into the future. I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless, in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. And they would either repeat that back to the, uh, the teacher um, with uplifted hands, uh, obviously from the, the previous verse there, or they would simply say amen and uh, salute the, the token back. And so that's the, the salutation that we're talking about, but we've kind of covered that in multiple weeks and we'll continue to cover it each week. Um, but then the ordinance is 
I don't know, one of those things where I've been so confused about it before, but now it's all kind of coming together and like I can see it in its uh, proper perspective here. So with these, um, these articles for our homework assignment or um, uh, just reviewing section 88 and looking at, um, what is it, John 13, um, what kind of questions or comments do you have about the ordinance of the washing of the feet? Have you heard of it before, or is this uh, kind of new territory for you? Uh, what do you know? What do you not know? How do we approach tonight? <laughs> you know, just kind of leaving it up to you guys. What, um, where we kind of take it? Um, if you happen to have read uh, the articles, I think they were very interesting to to kind of ponder over and look at the old implications of washing of the feet versus how that translates into a modern context. But anyway, just kind of opening that up. Any comments, questions along those lines? Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, I'm sure most of us have heard of this before and and have, uh, you know, seen it in church articles or videos and that. But uh, there's a couple of things that really was interesting to me where Joseph Smith mentioned that the washing of the feet of the person was sealed up into eternal life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And then as you started to read more about it um, from the second anointing and to read about that and the dedication of the homes, um, you know, on the wife and um, just all of that, I thought, gosh, that was really interesting to me, you know. Um, it said that this is something that the prophet does, and then in a couple of other places it said, are one anointed by the prophet or, you know, delegated by the prophet. And then, of course, it talked about the husbands and the wives with the general authorities. And I thought that was really interesting because the church never comes right out and talks about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like in that one article where Bruce R. McConkie taught, the full significance of this is not apparent to the casual reader, nor should it be. For the washing of the feet is a sacred ordinance reserved to be done in holy places for those who make themselves worthy. And I found that very fitting because it's like, yeah, it, it's not readily apparent. But um, as you uh, look and, and read some of these things, it's like, oh, how, how sacred and how significant this is for, for our day. Right, and then in the Holy of Holies or another place designated in the temple if they didn't have a Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is all, yeah, this is new territory for me, for sure. Um, sorry, I think I just totally interrupted him. Sorry, Did, <laughs> were you done now? <laughs> Go ahead and finish what you were. Totally done. It's all yours. Oh, sorry. My brain was, yeah, I don't know what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, just definitely, I think it like gave me more questions than mm -hmm. <laughs> answers, but um, let's see, what was I going to, well, just a couple things that I wrote down. I, I think it was, you know, I, just the, the comment from Christ in John, when he says, if I, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me, you know, when 
it was Peter, right? That was saying, you know, like, oh, you know, don't, don't wash me or whatever. And anyways, it just kind of, it helps that make more sense, you know, to, to me. Um, but, um, and then, oh, sorry. Where was my, what was my question? Um, um, oh, the, okay. So, so the wife performs this, they're talking about like the wife at some point, like they go home and, and she, she, uh, do you call it, do you call it anoints her husband or wash the feet or I, anyways, I am forgetting my words right now. Um, and in preparation, okay, help me with my words uh -huh, to yeah. prepare him for burial or something like that. What was it? anointing the husband anointing the husband anointing and the husband. but what was the symbol of it is like burial yeah so it's in a preparation for the burial so it's both a washing and anointing it's kind of a, a two-part thing um uh when when the wife performs it for the husband there and the example is is pointing back to mary when she performed that for christ and so um yeah oh. preparation for burial Okay, so that's what it was, what was going on when Mary did that for Christ. Anyways, I'm just, and so is it just more like it's symbolic, like when the wife is doing that for her husband, it's more just like a sim symbolic of that, of, of Mary doing that for Christ? Or is it like, I mean, it sounds like it's, it's, an important ordinance you know mm -hmm. i don't know i just think i don't quite understand that all right so i guess i don't even know what to ask <laughs> but yeah. oh and along with that like so that's is this an ordinance that only men need to have performed for them is the washing of the feet Does that mean? Yeah. that's also a very interesting question as it goes through there, it talks about how both man and woman in the temple are both uh, washed and anointed for, for the second time, and the, the blessings are not predicated um, uh, in, in, for a future date or whatever. They are now um, called as those things. Um, and then um, they, they perform prayer circle, all those different kinds of things, and then they go home, and it's basically a kind of a one-sided where the woman performs right. it for the man and i think that that kind of um hints at in kind of our differences between our washings and anointings in the temple where um what what's different from the men's side to the women's side um in becoming clean versus you are clean every whit kind of a thing and so i don't know i i don't know the full answer to that but um it's very intriguing to, to think about. Part of the section here it, uh, that I'm just quoting, the wife washes and anoints her husband according to the pattern given in John 12. Thus, what the wife does is in memorial of what Mary did. The rite is understood to prepare the husband for burial and to give the wife claim on him in the resurrection, which, you know, like we have our saving ordinances, right? Baptism through 
through ceiling. Um, but if this one isn't generally had, especially in the restoration of all things, right? Is this like, do wives not have <laughs> claim on their, their husbands in the resurrection without this ordinance or how is that done? Those are yeah. great questions that I have no idea, but, um, part of it is that, um, some of these are performed vicariously by uh, leaders in, in the church. Uh, they do vicarious second anointings. But um, uh, in that article, it, it pointed out which parts are done vicariously and which parts are not. And so, I don't know. Those are all great questions. Um, oh, I kind of looked at that. It says, thus uh, securing her position as heir to his blessings. So, that doesn't mean she doesn't have those blessings if she doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. Right. But if it is done, uh, then she has claim. It is indeed um, the rights and the blessings that she actually has claim to. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting because of the patriarchal order. She has claimed all of that now. Yeah, kind of like the calling an election. Like, yes, those things can be can be had, but here's like the stamp of approval. Like, you, you've got this. Here's the the ritual and the ordinance to go along with it, in order to so let it be done, <laughs> or so let it be written. <laughs> it's kind of like when they have their uh, the sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes along with the calling and election, sure. So another thing that I found interesting with all of this and uh, kind of the idea of preparing for burial, um, hearkening back to like Isaiah and, and the imagery <clears throat> that there is a death and a rebirth on each level of the ladder and that um, the, the role of, of male and female, that section in uh, chapter six of Isaiah decoded really helps point this out where like, what is the role of a wife in supporting her husband through his descent? And um, I think that that kind of helps illuminate this principle of preparing him for burial, helping him through his descent phase so that he can save the whole family. And, um, you know, we have that Christ, you know, uh, his infinite atonement, his great and grand descent in order to, uh, to save the entire um, uh, world from uh, death and hell. But yet on an individual level in our own family nucleuses that, um, that the wife is, is anointing, uh, washing and anointing and preparing for burial so that he can then resurrect the the family and uh, provide those blessings in in that not general way but but pertaining to that specific family kind of a thing which i i find interesting kind of taking that and putting it back plugging isaiah back into it do you think this was a so it sounds like it's you know it's a an a necessary ordinance um in that yeah progression whatnot um and just thinking how christ like he 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 did ordinances you know required ordinances um 
you know, baptism, whatnot. Like, so, so this washing and anointing that Mary performed for him, like, was this, do you know, like, it was this completely new? Or is this something that was done anciently? You know, that seemed like the apostles weren't really understanding what was going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if it was kind of like, okay, you know, you got baptized, he's like going, doing all the necessary ordinances or whatnot, or, or is it just like, this was something that kind of started with him? Mm-hmm. In the first reading, it says, this was a custom of the Jews. Oh, that's right. Whereby Jesus did this, that the law might be fulfilled, which I thought was really interesting. Right. So this is part of him fulfilling the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. You're right. Yeah. And so they just, they had lost, maybe had lost their understanding of this. I mean, just like so many of the, you know, they didn't really understand what these laws were pointing to, I guess. So mm-hmm. they didn't understand that at the time. Yeah. And so like what uh, Christ says there, where, um, you know, if, if I do this not, you have no part with me. And where Peter's like, oh, well, in that case, wash me head to toe, like do the whole thing. And he's like, um, let me quote from it, because if I don't, I'll, I'll betray it. Um, Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And I find it interesting going to other translations of that specific verse, they help kind of uh, clarify that a little bit. So let me pull up like um, some NIV and uh, other ones that. Um... Okay, so the New International Version says that Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean in um let's see, the English Standard Version, the one who has already bathed does not need to wash the whole body again, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And so, um, you know, I could go through lots of different translations there, but um, I'll I'll copy this link so that you can kind of compare those verses uh, side by side with their translations. But it seems to me that, um, that it's almost implying if you've already received baptism, if you've already cleansed head to toe, this ordinance only requires that you uh, wash the feet in in token of um, this second order of cleanliness that is required for um, what's to come and to have unity and to to be one, right? Like uh, as uh, Jesus tells him the the purpose of it um that you have no no place with me and when he's he's done washing each other's feet he commands them to that they ought to wash one another's feet for i have given you an example that you should do as i have done unto you verily verily i say unto you the servant is not greater than his lord which i mean invokes the son servant language right the uh, the servant is not greater than his lord um neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Um, 
And anyway, there's uh, the principle of oneness and unity and that we have to um, have to have this ordinance to kind of build Zion in a way. It, it seems to kind of equate along with that um, in my mind anyway. Um, it, it, it's interesting talking about all of this because like, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. I mean, maybe, maybe y'all know uh, all of the ins and outs of this, but um, studying this where it's not generally taught very clearly and openly, you know, in our, our Sunday school classes. And so we're all just kind of like gleaning little nuggets and uh, things here and there, um, which is, uh, it's just an interesting uh, way to look at it. I wanted to quote from the um, the LDS Daily article. Um, well, I it's them quoting Daniel Ludlow. So Daniel Ludlow said, the ordinance of washing of the feet has now been incorporated in the ordinances that are revealed to be administered in the Lord's house. However, the specific ordinance of washing of feet still exists and serves as what one might call a crowning ordinance. It is highly sacred in nature and not authorized for the general body of the church at this time. The power of the ordinance harkens to the teachings of Joseph Smith, who made mention that by the washing of the feet, the, per the person was sealed up unto eternal life. The ritual, okay, so that was the ordinance of the washing of the feet. Now, here's what he says about the ritual of the washing of the feet, which is, is a totally different thing. It says the ritual of the washing of the feet is also present in other sacred ordinances, which the ritual is, is pertaining to the second anointing, husband and wife. So there's, there's two separate things that are happening here. There's the ordinance, which uh, he's doing at the Last Supper and the School of the Prophets is doing, but then the ritual of the washing of the feet is what is done uh, between husband and wife. And um, anyway, it's also present in other sacred ordinances, not generally available at this time. Some of the past and some still reserved for select persons under the direction of the Lord. And then uh, that quote that I uh, talked about earlier from Bruce R. McConkie, the full significance of this is not apparent to the casual reader, nor should it be. For the washing of the feet is a sacred ordinance reserved to be done in holy places for those who make themselves worthy. And so I found that article very interesting, pulling out the difference between the ordinance of the washing of the feet and the ritual of the washing of the feet, and that they're both still very much um, practiced, but not to the general body of the church. Um, a great book um, that helps uh, kind of explain how those ordinances were practiced in the beginning uh, era of the, the restoration is a book by Jennifer Mackey, and it's called The Development of Temple Doctrine. Um, and she, she goes through a chart of all of the different ordinances, how they've progressed, you know, like how baptisms for the dead started and how it's uh, moved into to what it is now. And uh, she goes through Second Anointing and uh, Wilfred Woodruff journals, etc. Uh, it's a very enlightening uh, book and, and read uh, to kind of look at some that we just don't even hear about today. <laughs> what was the name of that again? Uh -huh. It's The Development of Temple Doctrine, and it's by Jennifer Mackey. But Mackey is spelled kind of interesting. You'll have to kind of figure out where what that spelling is. 
Um, but let's see, what was I going to say on that? Something else, but I forgot what it was. Um, so there is a part of this that really caught my attention up above, just underneath the picture of the Kirtland Temple, which is the Washington's will continue as a preparation for the solemn assembly held at the Kirtland Temple and as part of the assembly itself. Mm. And I've often wondered what the difference of a solemn assembly is versus just simply a, an assembly. And I thought, oh my goodness, this may be one of those things that I don't talk about, but this may be one of those distinguishing factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, how many solemn assemblies have we been able to, you know, as a general body of the church participate in versus other solemn assemblies that are had uh, by invitation only kind of thing. Um, But um, yeah, very interesting to, to think about the difference between solemn assembly and just assemblies. I like when at the conferences where we're sustaining a new prophet, they're, they're called solemn assemblies, right? Right. But like Cameron said, how many other solemn assemblies do we mm-hmm. not even know about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And then the one that you just read from Dan Ludlow about being sealed up into eternal life. That caught my attention too. Yeah, I, I found that. Anyway, I, it's, it's something that like, I'm just barely discovering that there's this iceberg and I've just hit the tip of it. And now it's like, okay, now I just got to dive in and study and, and keep uh, uh, seeing what else there there is here. But um. Oh, I almost had it again. I can't remember. <laughs> There's something, something in that Jennifer Mackey book that I want to quote, but it's just not coming. Anyway, if I remember it, I'll post it on the Learning Zion. But um, it's just right there on the tip of my tongue. But maybe I'm not supposed to talk about it. Anyway, well, the other one under anointing the husband, I thought was really interesting because of what we studied in Isaiah. It says that he's anointed to for the power to open the heavens mm-hmm. which just is absolutely incredible the power to obtain godhood and which we also uh, just talked about the sealing up to eternal life mm-hmm. i mean all three of those are monumental yeah exactly and that um the the second portion of it where it's performed at home right Uh, I think it's interesting, Uh, it's kind of under that charge section, where the couple receives a charge, including an injunction not to disclose the fact that they've received the second anointing, but the couple is then taught how to administer the second part, which includes the the portion where they actually um, dedicate their, their home. You know, we've heard you know kind of back and forth over the years of it it is appropriate to dedicate your home it's not appropriate to dedicate your home but i think that that helped clarify that point to me of oh we we would dedicate our home in this kind of a situation as an actual extension of the temple like holy parts and it's not just dedicating the home but it's also dedicating a specific room for that ordinance and um 
So I don't know. I, I think that that's uh, interesting in line with all of this of um, uh, receiving to eternal life. The, the calling election made sure all of that um, principle there. Then I thought of President Nelson, where it says that he's, you know, anointed with the power to uh, live as long as life is desirable. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, no wonder he it looks so darn young. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so one part that I would like to pick your guys' brains on what you guys think of when in both the account in John and in the school of the prophets, it talks about, um, the person that's administering the, the ordinance that they lay aside their garments, take a towel and gird themselves. And so, um, I was looking in you know, just comparing the translations across each other. And it it's quite interesting how the King James Version kind of gyps us in lots of, <laughs> lots of ways, right? But um, here's just kind of a, a smattering of some of the, the different translations. Uh, New International Version says, so he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Um, the... New Living Translation says, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. Um, so it kind of vacillates uh, between outer clothing, robe, outer garments. Uh, some just say his garments uh, and just kind of lump it all into together like the, the King James Version does. Um, but then many of the versions translate towel as holy apron. And so I found that very interesting that he's both Christ and, and Joseph Smith are performing the same pattern that they are laying aside their, their outer garments or their robe or something along that lines, taking a towel or a holy apron, girding themselves in order to perform this ordinance. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know if, if anybody has any comments or things on that, but like, I, just interesting because how many times have I read these? And I was just, I don't know, I've just understood it as, oh yeah, he just took a towel, you know, because things are going to get wet. And so, <laughs> you know, you're uh, going to be drying them off afterward. Um, but kind of the, the full implications, looking at the translations and the original wording and the, you know, significance of that as we get um, to the temple, uh, I looked it up in uh, this book that I, I saw a little pamphlet that I always reference all the time from Kim Gibbs uh, called The Sacred Symbolism of Temple Clothing. I'd just like to uh, quote what she says about the apron. Um, and not necessarily all of it, but uh, she says, in summary, the apron can symbolize these three things, but possibly more. But um, one, is a readiness to do the work of the Lord. Second is the ability to do that work by priesthood authority. And three, also a symbolism of fertility and reproduction. Um, 
but they talk about when the ancient high priest put on his apron, it represented his readiness to go to work, that he was serious about doing the work of the Lord. One of his responsibilities was sacrificing animals at the altar. So perhaps his apron served to protect his clothing from the blood of those sacrifices. Wearing an apron is something you and I can relate to today. When we're ready to go to work, whether it's in the kitchen or out in the workshop, we often put on an outer apron. It shows we're serious about the work, and it also serves as to protect our clothing or our inner clothing. Our temple aprons today possibly can represent the same thing, our readiness to perform holy ordinances for the Lord. Um, and then it, I mean, it has quite a few paragraphs and, and everything, but I found that very interesting where it's talking about referencing the, the ephod or uh, another apron that the, the ancient priests would wear to protect their clothing from the blood of those sacrifices and how blood from the sins of this generation is very much a part of this washing ordinance that, that Christ is doing and Joseph Smith is doing. I, I just wonder if there's a connection. <laughs> yeah, I had the exact same thought of DNC 88138, where mm -hmm. it says, and you shall not receive any among you into this school, save he is clean from the blood of this generation. And I thought that's perhaps why they took out the, off the outer garment, mm -hmm. uh, just symbolically showing that they are free from the blood and sins of this generation, or from the dust and the dirt and everything that has been picked up by society to have them clean and then put on the apron, right? To be able to go to work and do what to do the Lord's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that there's <laughs> just so much there that, um, I don't know, my brain's just like firing on all cylinders when I, I think about that. I, I think that there's a lot to that. Um, I forget where I posted it. It's either in, in week two or three on learning Zion, um, but it's a, a series of um, little blog articles from Todd McLaughlin. Uh, if you remember him from our author chat, um, he gave a, a three-part series on uh, becoming clean from the blood and sins of, of a generation, what that means, what it looks like as far as symbolism, practicality, etc. Um, a very interesting read. And so I would recommend going on there. I, I believe it's in I believe it's in week two in, in the, the notes I, I posted there. Um, but those those three articles are very interesting. If not, I'll make sure to go and post it in week two. <laughs> That's awesome because I yeah I when I I've heard that phrase like so often and apply it's because I yeah I like I've heard that phrase like so often and sorry my yeah. computer's being finally it's um, starting to distill or like oh sorry yeah there's either a lag on my part or your part sorry to talk over you <laughs> one of the things that I've often wondered about. Because in the temple, you know, when we're anointed, or the, um, in the temple talks about the blood and sins of this generation. But, you know, so my youngest daughter is looking like she's getting married and getting, and um, her fiance to be came over and talked to me for a couple of hours. And so we had this long talk, he's at BYU, 
And of course, I just had to ask because over 70% of men and now the women are even getting up to that percentage too, are into the blood and tins of this generation, which is pornography, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just hit me that that's one of the things that they're talking about. And that's something of this generation that wasn't prominent when I was growing up as a kid. I mean, one of the podcasts I listened to said when we were kids, it, you had to go out and find that. Now it finds you. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, and what other sins do we have? Abortion and 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 I mean, you can write down the list of these things, right? Wow. So, and every generation has their own specific sins, right? So the older I get, the more I start to understand this. Although for 15, 20 years, I never understood this at all. Yeah. And it's all coming at a, a forefront, you know, like we've learned from Isaiah and, and that, like everything's kind of a composite and these end times, I mean, it's just compounding all of the ancient patterns of Sodom, Gomorrah and Babylon and all that. I mean, <laughs> the youth of today, holy cow. <laughs> but yeah, but becoming clean from a whole generation uh, of sins is, is very interesting, uh, pointing to the pattern of the sons of the prophets. So when the, the sins of the generation become so strong that there's there's no point of a, an escape or reprieve from those things, a, a, Sarah, a seraphic, seraphim, seraphic, I don't know, that sounds like Jurassic Park or something, but a seraphic leader takes out uh, or calls out a group of, of sons who are willing to sacrifice on behalf of the people in order to provide divine protection for them you know uh, king hezekiah uh, king david there's lots of different uh, patterns and examples but um because the davidic covenant basically boils down to the fact that there is a method of sacrifice that that one can offer in order to transfer momentarily the law of justice upon another person so that they only that they can recover under the law of mercy for a time until they are ready to assume the full law of justice again and so that they're you know throughout all of the old testament and school of the prophets etc that they're willing to to take upon themselves and then rid themselves cleanse themselves of the blood and sins of this generation and then help those that are uh, coming along on lower uh, levels of the ladder in their spiritual journeys and progress, um, I think is an, a very interesting pattern. And as we are understanding and, and growing in the lectures on faith, how that uh, plays into, uh, I, I don't know, how it all just works together. <laughs> it's all kind of a conglomerate. And doesn't the Book of Mormon teaches that, that yeah. we'll never be tested beyond our ability. And mm -hmm. even if that means that someone has to pick up the slack until we're ready to get at it again. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great things that I loved about learning about the church when I joined was, was that principle. 
mm-hmm. that you know the, the lord loves us he didn't put us here to fail he put us here to succeed yeah exactly yeah it, it's an amazing um principle that they kind of distills over time like the first time that i was reading isaiah i didn't get it in its full context but as it um, played out book of mormon was key all of those different um people that are living the pattern and and helping i mean because that's what this whole thing is about we're never we're not just sent to this earth and going good luck come on back you know figure out all the ordinances and everything by yourself learn how to fight satan do all that and never be ministered to and make it back to the presence <laughs> it's all about helping each other and um you know we we have it in our own family units where you know little kids aren't ready to assume some of the full law of justice in in different aspects uh whether it's you know touching a, a hot stove or a fire or something like there's certain things that we shield them from or take the brunt of it uh through our experience and knowledge and wisdom for a time until they're ready to assume the the fullness of that and uh, anyway it's very interesting how it plays out but that book of mormon is so key isn't it uh, to help us get some clear patterns one of the other things that i thought about was you know the lord's mission statement in pearl great price this is work my work my glory to bring to pass the eternal life in, um you know of mankind and that's what this washing is all about is fulfilling that right mm-hmm. you know it's it says three or four times what we read that you're sealed up to eternal life i mean that is completely satisfying i mean it must be so gratifying for him to for this to happen and to see more and more be able to obtain that in this life yeah yeah i love that all right, Mother, it looked like you were going to say something. I might have cut you off. <laughs> I, I don't know if I was or not, but I, I was thinking about this binding of Satan. Uh, I Some of this plays into that. Um, but I, I was trying to look for what I was trying to say, but I can't find it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think there was a couple different references throughout the reading. Um, and I think one of them was from Avraham's podcast thing, uh, where he said that one of the abilities of the sons of the prophets was actually to bind Satan. Um, and so we know that, you know, in the millennium, Satan will be bound by the righteousness of the people, right? Because they're living in a terrestrial state. And so the sun servants get a kind of a preview of that through these these covenants and everything they're not completely exempt from satan but they do have the power they're beginning to learn the process of uh, of binding him um and uh there's some other quotes in the reading but i can't point <laughs> right off the bat but yeah i can find it yeah there's twice in the readings that it talks about that one is right underneath the picture of the kirkland temple second paragraph and it says, so that Satan cannot overthrow us. Mm-hmm. And then further on down, uh, underneath, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, it says exactly almost the same thing. It's calculated to unite our hearts, that we may be one in feeling and sentiment, and that our faith may be strong, 
so that Satan cannot overthrow us or have any power over us. History of the Church, Volume 2, 308. Mm -hmm. that, that's the one I was looking for. Because out in the margin, I have Unite Feeling and Sentiment and Satan Bound. And so I was, that's what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, sign me up. Yep. yep. <laughs> exactly. Um, so any kind of <laughs> it's interesting because group A, we had um an interesting kind of smattering of, of different things. And then um group B, we went through section 88 and just went through the parable and, and all of those different things. So, I mean, not to add to your homework load, but if you do want a, a totally different take on the reading from this week to, to go back and watch some of the other groups, because um, they, they all take it in very different directions. And, you know, there, there was so much homework this week. It was kind of overwhelming, wasn't it? But um, any other uh, kind of final thoughts and, and questions or anything on um, anything uh, ordinance salutation or what have you um it would sure be nice to see how this all ties in with with the latter right yeah yeah exactly like every day i get like a little bit more or like oh what about that connection something else to study and and everything yeah i just wish i was smarter and knew more about the latter because I've only read that book once with you guys, and I'm not sure I got it all. Yeah, I don't think I got it all. It, it's been so fun. Um, me and my mom have uh, led uh, another book club of that on a, a much slower pace than we did, um, and it's been so fun to go back through and uh, kind of highlight that. We're um, we're just starting chapter seven, um, but anyway, it's been such a fun ride doing that, and Next year, I plan on probably doing it again. I mean, I don't know about book club, but like studying Isaiah decoded again, uh, studying the words of Isaiah. There's so much pattern and richness in it. There's, I mean, it's no coincidence or uh, of no small um, significance that Christ commanded that we study Isaiah. I mean, there's so much there in that pattern. And so as it kind of distills over time and uh, everything starts kind of coming together. We realize that Isaiah has so much to, to offer us in all of these different studies. So if this is the crowning ordinance, which it talks about two or three times in the readings. Mm -hmm. It's like, so if, if that's really what it is, I mean, what beats it? Yeah. Right? And everything that you do in the temple. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that was another great point from like Triumph of Zion, right? Knowing that these things are available and that they're only presented to you when the Lord, uh, I mean, in their, their clarity or more understanding, as he deems that, uh, let's see, how does he word it? Because he words it so well, that he never sets you on a path that you're not ready for. And so once it starts distilling or the spirit starts working upon you and teaching you and, and stuff like that, these things are available in this life on this side of the bell. We don't have to just wait to death. We don't just have to endure and, and hopefully <laughs> make it through. But um, 
that we actually have many of those crowning things available to us in this life. And um, it takes a lot of um, faith. Like <laughs> I just recorded the uh, lecture second. I'm, I'm working through the, the audio uh, for anybody that wants to listen to them. But lecture two about um, that very principle. It's like, hey, these things are available on this side of the veil. And if you want them, lectures on faith is, is kind of a, um, is teaching us how available it really is, how um, the, the process has been from Adam uh, clear up until uh, the modern day. It's been, it's been fun kind of going through them very slowly. And uh, uh, I'm so excited to actually hit the lectures with, with everyone and get everyone's opinions and insights and, and everything. As I was reading this, I kept having this thought in the back of my head about President Nelson and then about Wendy, his wife, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking, oh my goodness, wow. Oh. You know, they keep, every, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, they keep so much from us, but, but clearly you, you, there's no question in my mind yeah. after having listened to her that, that this has all been opened up, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, it, it's like we only get like the tip of the iceberg from these general authorities of yeah. what's really out there. Yeah, exactly. The Lord loves to do his own teaching so that it's not muddled by all of the precepts and uh, traditions and, and all of that. But yeah, our, it's so amazing to kind of start realizing some of this stuff and then looking at our leaders and going, oh yeah, they're they're definitely doing it. They get it. Because, I mean, that was one of the great benefits of going through the book of Nelson, just looking at all of his words and like, yeah, he's fulfilling all of the ancient patterns. There, no doubt in my mind that we are being led by a foreordained man of God for this time. And you wonder if he knows exactly what he still needs to teach us, which is why he's desiring to stay in the earth still until he's done with what he feels his personal calling as a prophet and i've never had those thoughts before before tonight yeah. you know it's like they know what they're doing they know what they want to do they know what they're called to do and with this washington anointing now the pieces start to fit together because they basically are kind of deciding you know what's going on mm -hmm. yeah oh that's so fun i love it Um, well, anything else? Um, just a couple housekeeping things with, for next week, uh, we're studying the word of wisdom and it's, <laughs> it's been an intense journey the last couple of weeks, uh, with lots of different studies and, and things like that. But, um, anyway, basically the only homework is to, to read section 89 very prayerfully and thoroughly, but, um, I have, um, I just love this book. I, I, discovered it, uh, recommended to me, but I finally got down and, and read it. Um, this is from the Gundersons, Cassidy and Jordan Gunderson. Uh, it's called The Word of Wisdom, Hope, Healing, and the Destroying Angel. And um, it's available on Amazon, uh, both uh, digital and physical, but there's no audio. So I recorded the audio and obvious 
copyright stuff, you know, please don't share it out. But uh, under week three, uh, you can uh, get all of the different chapters in, in audio. It's not a very big book, um, but very insightful into um, just some studies and, and things to, to ponder about the word of wisdom and how it actually prepares us for the destroying angels to, to pass over us uh, in the end time. Um, so there's that. And uh, like I said, I've been recording the actual audio for the lectures on faith. I think I've got the preface and one and two, maybe three. I can't remember. I'm, <laughs> it's all kind of running together at this point. Um, but if you want those, they're underneath each week. Um, and you can start um, listening to those if you'd like. But I'll get the rest. I uh, should be done this week on, on those. Um. Yeah, any other comments, questions, housekeeping? If not, anyway, it's been a fun week. Uh, <laughs> both of these first weeks have just been like a, a download of information. It's almost overwhelming. It's like a fire hose, uh, fire hose of rabbit holes to, <laughs> to go down. But um, anyway, it's been fun. I've been uh, so excited with... Uh, each different group to, to kind of uh, hash these things out and, and learn and grow together, uh, much like the, the School of the Prophets. It's all about teaching each other. And because um, we all have been tutored by the Lord in very different uh, ways and aspects and little tidbits here and there, and, and kind of bringing that all together uh, has been such a, a fun experience. I loved every minute of it. And we've, we've, <laughs> we've only had a few minutes of it. Also, Cameron, uh, and maybe you already talked about this, and I missed it, but in Avraham's podcast thing, didn't it say that the end time servant is going to be setting up these schools of the prophets? Mm -hmm. that, well, I mean, it doesn't pluralize it, but yes, that he will um, function under that. Let me try to quote that really quick so that I don't butcher it. Um. Okay, it says, we note the applicability of this school of the prophets as it looked forward to the revealing of the Lord's arm, specifically his end time servant, in whose day the Jews and the whole house of Israel who come into God's covenant, quote, and this is, um, what is it? This is a quote from Doctrine and Covenants 90. As also through your administration, the keys of the school of the prophets, which I have commanded to be organized, that thereby they may be perfected in their ministry for the salvation of Zion, and for the nations of Israel, and of the Gentiles, as many as will believe, that through your administration, they may receive the word, and through their administration, the word may go forth unto the ends of the earth, unto the Gentiles first, and then shall be revealed in power, um, no, and then they shall turn to the Jews, and then cometh the day when the arm of the Lord shall be revealed in power in concerning the nations, the heathen nations, the house of Joseph, of the gospel of their salvation. For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language through those who are ordained unto this power by the administration of the comforter shed forth upon them for the revelation of jesus christ i mean that section like 
blew my mind and and i've got like lots of like sub studies to to do this week but um doctrine and covenants 90 is going to be added to uh, our final week i think as we talk about the the aftermath of uh, school of the prophets and what end time context really um is going to be fulfilled that the the end time servant the davidic servant will call out people who are willing to enter into that law of uh, sacrifice, et cetera, on behalf of the people and, and teach them properly how to, to minister uh, in that type of regard. And that, like it says there, for it shall come to pass in that day when that happens, that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue. Like I've always misinterpreted DNC 90. But in that day, they shall hear the fullness of the gospel in their own tongue, in their own language, through those who are ordained unto this power, those sons, servants, and, and seraphim, by the administration of the comforter, shed forth upon them by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like, I, I don't even, there's so many questions that I have. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> it's been a fun week. I've, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to next week too. Lots of fun changes and things happening, but anyway, uh, always check on, on Learning Zion. There's lots of different articles and books and, and things that I've been finding and posting. So, um, if you find anything else, send it my way. Cause I'm, I'm in this study mode. <laughs> All right. Have a fun week, everyone. Happy learning. <laughs> We'll see y'all later.